Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it, had, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed from there, their own country. They, they departed for their own country another way. Now, when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, he was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, plural, he shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Well, Father, the history is essential to our understanding of all that has happened in your providence, Lord. And so I pray that you teach us this morning and that you'd increase our faith, Lord, our understanding as well. And um, yeah, just bring it together for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Look back, if you would, to verse 1. I do have it on the screen. It's not there, again, so that you can leave your Bibles at home. It's there for parents with small children. 
who lose their place because of parents with small children know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> so it's there for your convenience so you don't lose track of where we are. So Matthew begins, he says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now twice in the chapter it said Bethlehem of Judea. The reason it probably says that is because there was a Bethlehem in Galilee as well. And uh, it was important to identify exactly where all this happened. All right, so in this chapter, I I believe it's necessary for historical context to introduce uh, a few things to you. Uh, I want to talk about Bethlehem and its location in Israel. Uh, King Herod and his family is always a very interesting conversation. Uh, If you've read Josephus, uh, the Jewish historian, his account of the family, uh, they're nuts. And uh, it, it's just a complete train wreck of a family. And, uh, and Herod is the beginning of, of all the insanity. And so we'll talk about him today. We'll talk about him, his kids more. Uh, just tragedy, the whole thing. Uh, and then I want to talk about the wise men from the East. And when it comes to these guys, uh, there's no end to the tradition attached to them. And uh, much of it's crazy. And we'll try to clear it all up as we look at it this morning. So the first thing, Bethlehem, uh, you have the map up there. Bethlehem is, is almost exactly in the center of the map. If you, from corners to corners, you draw across there, it'll just about go through Bethlehem. Um, you see the, some of you may not be familiar with the geography of Israel. The, the Mediterranean Sea there is to the west, and then the, the Dead Sea is to the right. How many of you guys have been to Israel? A few of you. Yeah. Uh, I asked first service, when you got there, did, you, did it dawn on you how small Israel was? I couldn't believe how small Israel was. Uh, I had, you know, I'd looked at maps. I had, you know, measured distances and stuff, especially when I was teaching through uh, the book of Joshua, because there's so many distances given in that book and just keeping track. But there's only, it's, by length, it's only a couple hundred miles, and uh, it's less than 100 miles wide. Today, because of the lines that are drawn up, uh, it's Samaria, which is just north of Judea, the West Bank there, as it hugs into Israel toward the west, from the beach to that line is 15 miles. You want to talk about not having any military advantage at all. That's it right there. That is a major breach in their security there. But anyway, these are the the lines at the first part of the first century. Uh, Bethlehem is about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Um, I couldn't go there when I was there because um, there, was the, there was violence going on there, and it's very typical today for there to be violence in, in Bethlehem. The name in the Hebrew means uh, house of bread, Bethlehem. And as you can see there, it's in that district or the province called Judea. At this time, Israel was divided into three sections going north and south, just to the north of there in that, uh, that kind of blue color is Samaria. And the north of that is the, the province of Galilee. And as we get further along in the narrative, we're going to spend most of our time with Jesus in Galilee because he essentially makes his headquarters there in Capernaum. Now, if you go to Israel and you say, hey, to the taxi driver, take me to Capernaum, uh, he won't know where to take you. If you say Capernaum, he will. So we pronounce things, I don't know why we pronounce things the way we do in the U.S., but 
the name uh, Capernaum, Kafar is, is village in the Hebrew, and then uh, it's, it's Nahum, it's Nahum, Nahum the prophet. So it's the village or the city of Nahum. Uh, but we say Capernaum, and the Jews, they, they will mock you. Uh, Jews are not afraid to do that. So uh, learn your terms before you go, or you'll end up in the West Bank or something. So three divisions there. We'll spend most of our time in the north, and we'll give you historical context of all of them. Even Perea on the east side of the river will become important later. <coughs> now, as, as far as Bethlehem is concerned, um, historically, it, it's, it's fairly insignificant other than a few details. And if it wasn't for its prophetic value, we may not pay any attention to it at all. Uh, people traveled through Bethlehem. It wasn't your, your typical destination. Very tiny city. Uh, of course, belonging to the tribe of Judah. Some of the history that we find there is Jacob was traveling south from Shechem, and he was going to go through Bethlehem, probably to get some water and to leave. And on the way there, Rachel died, his wife. Uh, that's Genesis 35. At the time, uh, when you look in the Old Testament, it's, it's Ephrathah is the name of Bethlehem, and it, it, it means fruitfulness. Uh, we had some of the judges, or one judge came out of there, in the book of Judges, Isban, uh, all kinds of tragedy happened in Bethlehem. Most importantly, we have Naomi, who was originally from Bethlehem. Of course, because of famine, she, she fled to Moab. But when she came back with Ruth, Naomi and Ruth settled there. And then Ruth had her great-grandson there. Who's that? David. Okay, he makes Bethlehem important. David does. And it's there that Samuel, the prophet, anoints David as king of Israel. Okay. And then just to give you an idea of how small Bethlehem was, <clears throat> about 500 years later, when Ezra was bringing Jews back from Babylon, from uh, the 70 years of captivity there, uh, he, he gives basically a census of how many people came back with him from each of the cities of Israel, mostly of Judah. And from Bethlehem, there was only 123 men. 123 men. Now, Nebuchadnezzar left people in Israel, but it was a very small number of people, and they were the very poor. And he left them there to tend the land so that the land didn't go to waste. But the number was very insignificant. Bethlehem has never had a large population. But when it comes to the prophetic significance of Bethlehem, it, it, it can't be overstated. This is the city from which the Messiah would emerge. Okay, that's it. We'll come back to the prophecy in a minute. All right. Um, as I said earlier, Matthew makes no mention of the fact that Joseph and Mary had previously lived in Nazareth. Okay, it's about 70 miles uh, north of Bethlehem. Neither does he mention that the couple was forced to return to Bethlehem uh, because of the Romans. Caesar Augustus had enforced a census, and in that census, everybody was required to go back to where uh, their ancestry was from. Well, Mary and Joseph are both from the tribe of Judah, but specifically from the house of David. And so in order to register for the census, they had to go back. Now, what's the, why is that practically a problem for Joseph and Mary? She's due. And uh, there's no Uber drivers around. And uh, I know that, you know, the movies typically have Mary riding on a donkey. But that does not settle well with the historical narrative because Joseph was so poor. And donkeys uh, were expensive, and donkeys made you money. 
And so the likelihood of her riding on a donkey, unless it was loaned to them, uh, is unlikely. Mary probably did those 70 miles or so on foot. Very pregnant. Okay. Now, <clears throat> we don't know exactly how far along she was but when she started, but she was super close. Uh, now, my wife, um, when she was three months pregnant, she did a 60-mile loop in the mountains of Wyoming with me. And then years later, she, she was three months pregnant again, and she climbed out St. Helen with me. So at three months, apparently, it's not too bad. But if you're into your, you know, eight month, I, I, you could just, I mean, I can only imagine, obviously. Uh, but it would have been hard. Now, everybody else that uh, was from Bethlehem was also returning to that city so that they could register. Well, Joseph and Mary were moving slower than everybody else. So when they got to town, the inn was full. The inn was full. And so they had to find uh, shelter elsewhere. And what we know from Luke is that they had to stay in an animal shelter, basically a stable and uh, there are some options historically where that could have been. Some assume that it was a cave against the hillside outside of town. And what the shepherds would have done was fenced the opening of the cave uh, for their animals. They would have cover underneath. Uh, oftentimes, the, the, um, the, these communities, they had dugouts underneath their homes, and they would put their animals under there. Uh, they did have um, covered shelters in the field, uh, we don't know which one it was, um, but it was all they had. And uh, so they took what they could get, and Jesus was born in a barn. Uh, funny story. Um, Pastor Marcos, our missionary in Peru, uh, he was here at our house. And every time he would leave our house, he'd leave the door open. And I, I said, what, are you born in a barn? And he has no, uh, that figure of speech is totally unknown to him. And he goes, well, Jesus was. So that, that argument doesn't hold. Maybe in Peru, but not here. So, so there they were. Matthew tells us that all of this took place during the days of Herod. Now, Herod um, was an extremely insecure man. He was a megalomaniac. And uh, by all accounts in history, the people who knew him, he was a psychopath. Okay? He was a psychopath. And uh, being born as a king during his day was dangerous, okay? He is called Herod the Great. Of course, I'm sure he gave that name to himself. Uh, he was the son of an Edomite. His mother was uh, from an Arabian kingdom called the Nabatians. And uh, so what that means to us is that uh, Herod was not a Jew. He was not a Jew. Uh, but he did like to be considered a Jew. And he would practice uh, when it was convenient to him politically, he would practice Judaism, uh, but it was only for political gain. Okay? So he was, uh, he was slippery, he was a snake, uh, he was evil, uh, and we'll look at some of that later on, just not so much today. Uh, uh, we will, actually, a little bit. Um, by the year 37 uh, BC, Caesar Augustus had given everything within the borders of Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon to Herod the Great. And uh, the way that he managed to, first of all, become king of Israel and then get more territory is a lot of schmoozing, okay? And uh, a lot of ugly history. The days of Herod. This was subsequent, they're speaking here. Uh, Matthew is subsequent to Jesus' birth and before, of course, Herod's death. Herod 
died, uh, according to Josephus, in 4 AD. 4 AD. And that was a good day in Israel. The wise men. Now again, I, I have no intention of throwing a wet blanket on anything that you have gained throughout your lifetime about these men. The truth about these guys is they are, they are completely mysterious. Uh, there are some details historically that we can gather. We'll talk about them. Uh, the Greek word for wise men is, uh, is magoi. Uh, it's, a, it's a transliteration from the Persian, so it's not even a Greek word. Uh, we're, we typically call them the magi or the, the magi, which is from the Latin. These men uh, that came from the east, they were of a priestly class, a tribe of priests uh, from the Medes, the Persians, and even the Babylonians. And we learn that uh, from the book of Daniel. Okay, that's our oldest reference to it biblically. And there are some historians that talk about it that are Greek, uh, but some of their information is so strange and superstitious that it's, it's hard to take them serious in regard to some of the things they say. Uh, we do know that their craft, as it were, was astrology. But as we look into the text here, it's, it's, it was more along the lines of astronomy because what they were doing is they were following the course of a specific star. That's not exactly astrology. Okay, astrology, of course, is... Is, has to do with idolatry and other things. And many Magoi were idolaters uh, in some regard, but these men were more interested in what this star was doing, okay, and where it was leading. Yeah. There is something that we do know about them uh, by this time in history. They were typically monotheistic, which is very strange, meaning that they only worshiped one god. Uh, they were basically moral, and they were hardworking farmers. That's, I think that's the best we can draw from some of the, the, uh, the secular writings that are out there. I mean, who's going to lie about them being farmers? But if they said that they could fly, then we go, well, hold, hold the phone, okay? And there's stuff like that out there. But anyway, uh, but from the text here, there's some questions that I would love answers to. And uh, if you're not familiar with these questions, I would love to introduce them to you and then maybe someday you can give me an answer. Here's the first question. How would they know that a particular star is the star of a Jewish king? They're from the east. They're, we don't know that much about them. Very unusual. But they've looked into the heavens, and they said, that star right there is the star of a Jewish king. How did they know that? Okay, and, and second, why would their study of the stars lead them to Judea, to the king of the Jews? I mean, why would that happen? What would motivate them to travel to Judea to worship this king and present gifts to him? And they could have just said, hey, there's the king of the Jews star. I mean, kings are born all the time, right? What's the big deal? And how did the star lead them to Judea and then on to Bethlehem? I think those are important questions. I wish that we could find some historical data to answer them concretely. But I think that the only plausible answers can actually come out of the book of Daniel. And if you're not paying attention to Daniel, you'll miss some of the details there. But let me give you some of those details. Listen uh, to what, it's from Daniel 5. And this is the context. Uh, Belshazzar, uh, he is partying with uh, other dignitaries there in Babylon. And Babylon was the most fortified city in the world at the time. And they believed it to be impenetrable. 
And so instead of uh, being on the wall as, as the enemy was trying to get in, they were completely carefree and they were parting. And what they did, uh, Belshazzar said, I know, let's do something foolish. Uh, we have in our treasury the, the articles of gold and the utensils from the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Let's go get them and let's drink out of them in worship of our own idols. And so as they're doing that, of course, there was writing on the wall. A hand appeared and wrote on the wall, meeny, meeny, tekel, ufarsen, and nobody in the room could read it. And so uh, it says that Belshazzar, I love the King James, it says that his knees smote one against the other. It means he was afraid. And, and so they're trying to figure this out. And finally, um, the, the daughter-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar is basically sought for counsel. And this is what she said about Daniel. She says, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, of course, she's a pagan, were found in Daniel. An excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in Daniel, so that King Nebuchadnezzar made him chief among the wise men. Daniel 5, 11 through 12. That's quite the resume, right? Now, listen to this. Because of Daniel's skill sets, Nebuchadnezzar appointed him chief over the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. Everybody that was anybody in the kingdom of Babylon, Daniel was placed over them. And, and the reason was is because, not just because of, well, the reason was because of Daniel's wisdom and what had happened in Jan, Daniel chapter 2, or chapter 1 rather. You remember, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he called for his wise men, his soothsayers, all of these strange people, and he said, I want you to tell me what my dream means, but I also, I'm not going to tell you what my dream was. He says, I'm not messing around here. If you guys who are who you say you are, you're going to tell me the dream, and you're going to tell me what it means. And they're like, nobody can do that. And so Nebuchadnezzar plans to kill all of them. But then Daniel says, well, hold the phone. Let, let us fast, let us pray, and we'll see if the God of Israel can answer this issue, because it's a big problem. Well, the Lord gives him the dream and the interpretation of it. And it's crazy. You know, he goes to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, Nebi, this was your dream. And then he says, and this is what it means. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar is blown away. And it's through that experience that he has made the chief over all of these people who are to provide wisdom for them, for Nebuchadnezzar. He is now the leader. And you know, of course, there's more stories in the book of Daniel. And what they do is they, all of these stories demonstrate the superiority of Daniel's God versus the gods of Babylon. Okay, it's great stuff. But you could imagine that as Daniel did that, that some of these wise men fell under his counsel. You get it? Uh, he was their leader. You can imagine that Daniel, being the robust man of conviction that he was, was correcting all of their idolatrous stuff and implementing the information of the one true God. Okay? There's every reason to believe that he influenced uh, these men with his teaching. And there was established a group among them that carried on what Daniel had taught. Okay? Now, I personally think that Daniel's instruction 
uh, about the God of Israel. And then also Daniel's prophecies, many of them are about a Jewish king. I don't think there's any coincidence there that he's chief over them. He talked about this Jewish king. It's very interesting. And then when we come to um, back to the Magi in our story, and then their use of the stars. How many of you guys have seen uh, the Star of Bethlehem documentary? Yeah, so whenever I watch something like that, I, I go, I don't know, I don't know. But actually, NASA endorses it. And the whole thing is about how this particular star was behaving in the first century and how some, some people that study the stars could look at that and know that something was up. And so they trace the star and how it behaved and what it did. And it's through a, a computer software uh, for astronomy. And uh, basically, he hits rewind, and the stars just rewind in history. And it tells you where everything was. And then you push play, and it just moves forward. And, but you, you hit it really fast. And then it moves quickly, and you can see what it was doing. Anyway, uh, Answers in Genesis also has endorsed the film. Uh, I think I'll show it again this year. I've shown it before. Uh, I think you'll like it. But it explains a ton of uh, the details of how these magi looking from the east to the west at this star and all that it was doing. Some of you have seen it. Did you like it? Oh, okay. Well, good. We'll show it then. All right, real quick. Uh, let me mention um, some traditions regarding the wise men. Are you guys getting warm? Yeah, me too. Okay, if I start sparkling. It's not sweat. So perhaps you have encountered a lot of uh, traditions regarding these people, and I want to make sure that we have the text before us rather than some of the, the craziness. For example, uh, there's no evidence from history that these men are three kings. I know that we have a special song at Christmas about these, these three kings, um, and the tradition says that one is from India another one is from Egypt, and one is from Greece. And then in tradition, we've also assigned them names, Melkor, uh, Balthazar, and Caspar. Okay? There's also a tradition that Thomas the Apostle baptized them. Okay? That's not completely unbelievable, I guess. But St. Helena discovered their bones at Constantinople. And then they were taken to Milan, and they currently reside at the cathedral in Cologne. Now, William Hendrickson, Bible scholar, says one must be gullible indeed to accept all of this. You guys, Christians should not be gullible. They should not be. We should be the best thinking people on the planet. Okay? And if the text does not confirm history, we need to be very careful. All right? I've mentioned the issue of Luke before. Luke's uh, historiography in both his gospel and, and the book of Acts, for years, for over 100 years, scholars attacked him and said that he was making up titles, offices, places, and everything. Tons of things. Because they hadn't yet found those things in extra-biblical material. Guess how many of those things have been found to date? Every single one of them. Okay, so the text can be trusted. Uh, and tradition should always be held in, in question. Okay, <laughs> this is what we know from the text. They were wise men. They were, they were magoi. They were from the east. Now, this excludes that tradition uh, regarding where they were from. If they're from the east, they can't be from Greece or Egypt. So it contradicts the text. Uh, they came to Jerusalem after Jesus was born, and they came in the days of Herod. So we know that they came before 4 AD because Herod has to be alive, and he was dead at 40 AD, or 4 AD, rather. All right, 
They came from the east. They go to Jerusalem and look at, they show up in town and they're saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Why would they start asking the residents of Jerusalem if the king of the Jews was born? If anybody should know if the Jewish king was born, the, the, the residents in the capital of Israel should know. Okay? So you see there's this assumption from them that the, the residents of the king of the Jews' kingdom know what's up, and they don't know a thing. They don't know a thing, really. Okay? They don't know what's going on in the stars. They don't know what's going on on the ground. These guys only know, I think they know the best part. Okay? Interesting stuff. The wise men. Verse 3. So when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So they did initially go to the king. Now some people believe that there was an entourage of people with them, and, uh, and that drew the attention. And then, of course, they were immediately ushered into King Herod. But that's not what the text says. They were mingling with the people, and they were getting people stirred up over the Messiah. And then that word eventually made it to the citadel, and then Herod hears about it, and it, and it says that he was troubled along with all of Jerusalem. Okay, now, if, there, if, if there's a bunch of, of talk about Messiah that is spreading like mad, and it's coming from people even from a foreign nation, it's concerning to a lot of people. Okay? Now, it's concerning to different people for different reasons. If, if we know the history of the Zealots, they were always looking for an opportunity to overthrow Rome. And so the idea of the Messiah being current to them was, let's give him a sword and let's get rid of these people. Okay? And then the Pharisees, they would have been skeptical, but in their heart, they were hopeful. They wanted Messiah to come. They wanted him to do his thing. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they were cozy with the Romans. They didn't want anything to disrupt their well-being, their finances, and all of that. So they didn't like the idea of a Messiah. The common people were like the Pharisees, who they were mostly influenced by. They were looking forward to Messiah. But the idea of it coming, of Messiah coming, in their understanding meant war. And so that's troubling. But when Herod heard it, being the insecure tyrant that he was, this person is just a rival to his throne. And if the Jews get stirred up too much, it could be full-on insurrection. So people are really jacked up over this whole thing. And it gets the king's attention. Verse 4, And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Notice his question here. He didn't ask them, hey, where's the king of the Jews going to be born? Now he says, where is the Christ going to be born? See how he merges them? As I said, he was familiar with Jewish theology and that the Messiah would be the Jewish king. So he just brings them right together. He knows that the, the, the king of the Jews will be the Messiah. But he's no Hebrew scholar or, or Bible scholar. So he calls upon certain Jews that can give him what he needs to know. Okay? And he asks the priests, the scribes, these men that are a part of the, the Jewish council. Interesting. Some of them are completely liberal, these guys. The scribes, though, are the actual the Bible scholars. And they say to him, he says, where's the Messiah to be born? And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophets. They had a ready answer, didn't they? They had a ready answer. And here's the text itself. It's a quotation from 
the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. Mind you, before I read this, this is actually a Greek translation, well, this is an English translation of a Greek translation of the Hebrew called the Septuagint, okay? It says, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. My people Israel. Now, this does identify where the ruler would be born, but it's not an actual, it's not a very good rendering of the original language, the Hebrew. So I want to take you to Micah 5.2, and I want you to notice some of the differences that the original translators had missed. First of all, here in, the, the, in Matthew's quotation of the Septuagint, he says, for out of you shall come a ruler, okay, who will shepherd my people. Look at the difference in Micah. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. That's a little different. And for Herod, it's, it would be a lot more intimidating, okay, because of the nature of the text, okay? Yeah, not a ruler. This one will be the ruler. Not simply the one, a one, but the one chosen by God to be king over Israel. The last line, though, I believe is probably the most important. Of course, it, it tells us where he'll be born. It tells us that he'll be a ruler. The Septuagint says a shepherd as well. But look at that last line, the last, after the, the, that comma, it says, Who, whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. This takes us right back to Emmanuel. It's God with us, okay? This person, uh, the language literally means that he will come out of eternity. He will come out of eternity. The NASB says that he comes from the days of eternity. So he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but he will not begin there. It means that he has no beginning. He's an eternal person. He's, he's infinite in his being. He came out of eternity past. That's the ruler that Micah was anticipating. He is God with us. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. So with the information gained, he secretly calls these guys back to him so that those who knew him in Jerusalem, uh, would not spoil his plans. That's what's going on, okay? He's trying to communicate that he wants to worship this king as well, that he's interested in this person, but he's keeping it on the down low because what he wants to do is he wants to kill this child. It's just a rival to his throne. And it says that he inquired about uh, the star in all of this because he was trying to determine the age of the child, And listen here, it says, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. So he knows by the star that that the child is young. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Come back straight to me, because I want to go worship him as well. Yeah, he's a liar. He's a liar. Come back to me. Notice it says young child. Now, Jesus at this time could... He could be a toddler. I know that messes with your nativity scene. Um, But some time has gone on, and he could be a toddler. We'll look at it a little bit. It says, When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Now here's the tragedy of all this. 
if the wise men had just waited a little bit longer, the star would have moved from where it was to Bethlehem. But instead, they began to inquire, and they created this stir, and then Herod became aware of what was going on. And they didn't need to inquire of the scribes. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him, and when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What's the first thing you notice here in the text? I gotta hurry, we're out of time. There's a house, not a stable. They have moved on, okay? Probably what has happened is all the people that came from the census are now gone, and there's room for them someplace else, okay? It's no longer a nativity scene where the shepherds had arrived the night that Jesus was born. This is sometime afterward, okay? And that does change the the nativity scene, which is typically inaccurate because the shepherd and the wise men, they didn't cross paths. They They never met. Totally different times. So Jesus, by this time, many believe that he was walking, okay? Walking, yeah. Whenever you encounter tradition, there should be some suspicion, okay? More importantly in the text here is the behavior of the wise men. It says that when the star paused over Bethlehem, over where the child was, these men were overjoyed. And they go into the house and they see Jesus and these dignified, powerful, wealthy men. They fall to their faces and they begin to worship him. Now it's true that someone can can bow down uh, to another person and not worship them. They can do that showing reverence for a particular office, but that doesn't fit into the context uh, here. Okay, with all things considered, all that they know, these men are worshiping. How many of you guys have your own star? If you did, do you think that would make you a significant person in history? I think so. I think so. If these men were indeed influenced by Daniel and This Jewish king is who Daniel said he was. They know that he's come out of eternity. They know this. Okay, this is the only appropriate response for them. It's to worship the child. He is the king of prophecy. He's the king of the stars. He is Emmanuel. And so only worship will do. That's the only proper thing to do. No regular king. This is the king of kings. And then to honor him, they give him... Uh, their treasures. It's gold and frankincense and it's myrrh. Okay, now um, also tradition attached to these gifts and this one may bother you, but I'm, I'm going to hopefully smash it and cleanse your mind of all this stuff. Uh, some have suggested that the gifts are symbolic. Now, I don't have a problem with symbolism, but if you're going to say something symbolizes something, you better have a concrete way of demonstrating that. Okay, they say that the, the gold represented is royalty. They say the frankincense, his deity, and, and I realize I'm being boring at this point, uh, talking against this, and the myrrh pointed to his suffering and his burial. Okay, uh, but how, do we, how did we arrive at those conclusions? When we look at the Old Testament, there's nothing from that text to go, gold means this, frankincense means this, and myrrh means this. Let me give you some examples. I need to close here because our children are going to, or our Sunday school teachers will go crazy. But uh, for example, myrrh is always in a positive light in the Old Testament 
rather than one of suffering and burial, as the, the sim- symbolic people say it is. Actually, the word most commonly is used in the Song of Solomon. And trust me, it's not about suffering in the Song of Solomon. Okay? In the temple, frankincense was added to various offerings so that the offering would be a sweet-smelling aroma to God. It was also one of the ingredients for the incense that was burned inside the temple uh, in the holy place that would then fill the temple. It was a means of worship. And then gold, you know, gold was, was distributed so widely in the Middle East that it's impossible to say, well, this event definitely speaks of his royalty, okay? I'm not as confident as these other people. In fact, I'm rather against that whole idea because I can't put my finger on something specific. The text does not say that at all. Now, by removing that historical traditional symbolism from it, it does not diminish the significance of the act of worship in it, okay, of their worship costing them something. They traveled for weeks to get there, if not months. And then they, they gave of their treasure and they bowed down and worshiped him. Now, something else that is significant is that after this particular time, Jesus becomes a fugitive and a refuge and they have to go down to Egypt. Now, Joseph and Mary are extremely poor. What do you think they need if they're going to be refugees and fugitives? They're going to need provisions. They have the gold for currency and they have frankincense and myrrh that they can exchange for currency. That will provide for them during their time in Egypt before they come back. That sounds like perfect providence to me. How about you guys? Yeah. More than pay their way. Finally, I I didn't get my verse up there, but you can enjoy the beach while I read it to you. (laughs) Verse 12, and we'll finish. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. The point of that is to give Joseph and Mary time to depart before tragedy falls on the city. Go ahead and stand up. I got to get you out of here before my, I have revolt. Father, we love you. And Lord, we today, we have so much more information than the wise men. And yet we're reluctant to bow down and worship you in humility and reverence. Lord, I pray that their example, just by what they knew, It was enough to bring them to their faces, Lord. We should, of all people, be the best worshipers. We should worship in sacrifice. It should cost us to worship something. As David even said, I'll offer nothing to the Lord that doesn't cost me something. Lord, I pray that you would help us in our expression of worship. Help us to be humble. Help us to be devoted. Help us to recognize fully who you are, that you are the king of prophecy. You're the king of the stars. You're worthy of our worship. And as we celebrated in communion, you then became a man. You suffered in our place and you shed your blood so that you might present us faultless before your throne. Lord, help us in our weakness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.